This is Supernatural Selection on DeviantBehaviorRadio.com, hosted by Kevin the Bastard. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Supernatural Selection, a look at the supernatural with some professional amateurs. My name is Kevin the Bastard. With me this week is Mr. David Davis. David, how you doing, buddy? Oh, that's my uh, skunk ape call. Oh, well, it's nice. Yeah. I like it. Was, was it good? Was it good? It was pretty good. Now I just I wonder if it means that I'm in heat or not. I just I, don't know. You know what? You'll know. I can't when, tell honestly. Look, when you go to take a shit and an arm comes through the window, you'll know it worked. Uh, yeah. So, oh, a nice little uh, preview of what we'll be talking about later today. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, real quick before we get started, we got a little bit of uh, housekeeping to do. First off, we actually got a question on uh, Twitter. Ooh. Like just after the ep- we got done recording the episode, so let me pull that up real quick. Uh, crab tree. <laughs> uh, let's see. Nick Conroy, fan of the podcast, asked, "I want to hear some Halloween candy takes. What are your favorites? How do you feel about candy corn, almond joy, Necco wafers, good and plenties? Also, are octopuses aliens? That's technically that two. That's two questions. But let's go mm-hmm. ahead and." answer the uh halloween candy thing you know those uh those like creamy candies that come in like the orange and black wrappers they're they're like peanut butter flavor i love those and i don't have a problem with candy corn i always kind of want to take like a stick of gooey softened nougat and put the candy corn back into it and make a candy corn on the cob Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, um, like, I like candy corn, but, you know, the thing is, I'll buy a bag of it, and then I'll just sit there and eat it, and then get yeah. sick of it. Uh, well, that's, you know, kind of like and pancakes. I, like, yeah, I, I, yeah, especially, like, if you get the candy corn that has little pumpkins in it. Oh, yeah. Because that's too much candy corn in one shot with one of those pumpkins. Yeah, that's like, called the, the, the autumn... Yeah. The autumn mix. Yes, I saw yeah, that the other day, I was like, no, nah, no, you're not getting me yeah. this time. Yeah, because the candy corn kernel is the perfect serving size. Exactly. But the minute you bite into half of one of those little candy corn pumpkins... Oh, you're done. And you're just like, oh, I need to eat the other half of this. <laughs> yeah, you're it's halfway... Just, it's, it's too much. It's you're too much. halfway through a thumb-sized pumpkin, and you're like, oh, Jesus, i got to lay down. But, um, yeah, as, as far as Halloween candy goes, uh, for me... I've always been a fan of the Tootsie Pops. Whenever I buy them, mm-hmm. I always pull out the cherry ones first. Oh, I love the cherry uh, ones, I, I always set those aside. You know, when I go to Dollar mm-hmm. Tree to buy the candy for Halloween, mm-hmm. I'll always buy the bags that have at least two or three. Because the bag's transparent, so you can look inside. And you can so see. So I get the one with at least two or three of the cherry ones, and I yeah. hoard those to myself. See. And, yeah. 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 And the other candy, it's um, I, I get them for a buck. It's like these little fruit chews. They're just basically like this... Um, sweet chew but inside they have this little like gel or something like different flu- fruit flavors and they're they're super cheap like i, I prefer yeah. fruity candies i'm not huge on a, i'm not as huge as chocolate anymore halloween i'm always into fruity candies but also like i'm huge on chocolate like any mm-hmm. and and honestly anything butterscotch or peanut butter i will follow you home i don't care <laughs> if you're like uh fucking richard ramirez i will follow you home if you have chocolate and peanut butter 
you know, and the, the, the candy I wish they would give out on Halloween, they just don't because it's like an old person candy is uh, snow caps. I love snow caps. Snow caps. Oh, yeah, man, it's just it's a little those. like uh, little chocolate uh, chocolate parfaits or whatever they are with like the yeah. little white sprinkles and like i'll get those uh-huh. like i'll get a box of them but there's no one handing out box of the box yeah, of those for halloween yeah they're kind of a christmas thing and you don't want to like mix your christmas with your halloween because then like it's like they go well with popcorn by the way i know oh yeah. god i know dude we used to get like a box of those and pour them in our popcorn mm-hmm. like we did that when i saw transformers a movie back in 86 yeah. to date myself I- I think I'm going to be getting uh, some popcorn and some snow caps when I go to see the uh, Eternals this weekend. Oh, I'm just going to wait for it to come on Disney Plus because, uh, quite yeah. frankly, I don't want to go out in public here. Yeah, it's not so bad over here. We got one of our theaters has those very nice mm-hmm. new like plush seats with the little trays and everything like that. Yeah, now there's there's so, like a couple yeah. of movies coming. We've got a new IMAX screen here in town, and yeah. uh, I went and saw Dune in IMAX. Oh, totally fucking worth it, dude. Oh, my God. Dune is so good. You should just do a it special just, episode where it's just you oh, and I talking about Dune. Oh, my God. Yeah, no. I mean, it's <laughs> it's its own thing. It transcends yeah. everything. But yeah. also, speaking of uh, events, uh, I'm going to bring up the fact that if you're listening to this right now on Friday the 4th, you st- sorry, Friday the 5th, my bad. I have slipped through time here. Uh, tomorrow, I will be in Natchez with Clark Wayne at the Natchez Bigfoot Bash. So come to the VIP tent and see us. We will have stuff to hand out. Probably not as much as we thought, but I've got business cards. With the, you all got a the, banner for your table? We do have a banner for the table. Hell it's yes. Getting, I'm so proud of you guys. Yeah. I, just, I love what you guys have done with uh, Deviant Behavior Radio. I'm happy to be a part of it. Thank you for giving me two shows. Hey, no problem, man. Your your second show is taking the place of the show I don't have the energy to do. So that is <laughs> awesome. Uh, but go. yeah, we're going to be there. If you're listening on Sunday, you missed it. But like, we're going to do a recap. We're going to do an episode that was will have been recorded at the Bigfoot birthday bash. So you will get to experience it the way we experienced it, which is working for a living. So <laughs> that'll be our first like live show. Oh then. yeah. That'll be our first actual like go around interview show. We have got like a lot of Bigfoot celebrities. We're going to talk to I'm going to try not to piss them off by bringing up ghost monkeys. Um, I mean, hell I might actually be able to interview Afro man for this. That's so good. That's going to be great. So I think that's it for the housekeeping this week. So, David, let's get into it. All right. Well, we finally arrived at the end of our Boggy Creek journey. Kevin, how do you feel feel about the Falk Flap after talking about it for, like, over two episodes now? Look, I'm going to be honest. This has been like catching up with an old friend, that I've and I've really missed the Big Hairy Lummox, and I've missed the Falk Monster as well. Well, I'm not that big. I'm like five six. Okay, thank you. that's fair. But yeah, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, like the Falk monster, uh, it's like in my DNA, and it's almost like catching <laughs> up, up with a friend of my parents, you know, that I liked, and yep. getting to talk to him. So I've really, really enjoyed this episode, and also you've written it so well. I want to get that out there. I appreciate uh, that at the start. You have done an amazing job with this series, so. I'm, I'm looking forward to taking a research break, that's for sure. Uh, I cannot fucking, <laughs> fucking imagine, because I've already started reading a book that, quite frankly, if this were Call of Cthulhu, I'd be losing sanity points. 
Well, you know, and it, it give, doing all this gives me a re, uh, like a, an appreciation. Like I've always appreciated what like podcasters do, oh, especially yeah. like Marcus Parks uh, and Henry Zabowski on last podcast on the left. And like because the amount Lina of research as well, doing a research on uh, their music show No Dogs in Space. Yeah. That woman is a monster when it comes to digging yeah. up like obscure information. Well, and it's also that thing about you have to create a through line because you can't just yeah. like read a book and throw facts at people. You have to have some sort of structure, and I think um, I think the method to our madness will be apparent by the end of the episode, which oh, I'm excited yes. about. I believe so. So, where were we last time, my friend? Okay, so um, last time we had talked about like the felt flap, uh, the felt flap that led to um, Charles B. Pierce kind of arriving. Yes. So. Uh, this three-part series owes a lot to the work of Lyle Blackburn, who wrote The Beast of Boggy Creek, The True Story of the Falk Monster. We've used that book for all three episodes. Again, mm-hmm. very well-written book. Provides a lot of information about the legend of Boggy Creek that mm-hmm. you would ever really need. Um, <laughs> and it's still just an incredibly entertaining book. Yeah. Um, so, it basically, if it, it, it's a must-read for anyone who wants like a quality book documenting the such a unique uh, skunk ape as it were yeah yeah i agree this is the kind of book that shows like ours really thrive on so i would like to get everyone to consider getting a copy of this book and supporting mr blackburn because i mean holy crap we wouldn't be here if it weren't for like the people that do the actual on the ground research yeah and then the book is so fun and there's so much that i've like had to admit Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I don't want to like rip off the work he's doing, sure. Um, just because there's there's so much good storytelling, and we'll actually uh, hint at a story in this episode <laughs> that we'll have to revisit another time. <laughs> I can't. But wait you can get for the that. full story in the episode uh, in the book. Oh yeah, Let, let's yeah, yeah. I'm looking so, forward to it. Oh yes. All right. So we're going to turn back to where we open the series with filmmaker Charles B. Pierce. Oh Chuck. Yeah. So, inspired by reports about the Falk monster that stemmed from the Falk flap of, like, 1970, 1971, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he decided he wanted to strike while the iron was hot and make a movie. Mm-hmm. Now, we only covered a few of multiple sightings in the area through that period of time, but if you want to read a thoroughly documented accounting of sightings, I definitely encourage you to buy a Lyle Blackburn's book. Mm-hmm. Um it's definitely, uh, I've enjoyed it a great deal as I've been working on this. It's one of those that's going to go on, like, my paranormal shelf and just, like, it's going to be a, a place of honor, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, one thing I want us to think about when we talk about the movie The Legend of Boggy Creek is that it came out in August of 1972. And the incidents that we covered in the previous episode ran up through June of 1971. That means that once Charles B. Pierce decided he was going to make a movie, he basically just hit the ground running with it. And that is a that is a genius move. I mean, he's mm-hmm. riding the wave of interest in this monster locally. Everything is fresh on the mind of the witnesses. His timing is absolutely perfect, and I applaud him for mm-hmm. his speed in this. Yeah, I mean that that's hustle and that's drive right there. Absolutely, you, you gotta you gotta respect that. Don't don't hate the player, hate the game. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, while this wasn't the first movie he was involved with, it was his directorial debut. Uh, he kind of transitioned from the advertisement industry into the world of movies. And I think that's, uh, that's also very important. We'll get into that later. But um, And we did talk a little bit in the first episode about like uh, his first movies, like uh, The Town That Dreads Sundown. Sundown. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I would definitely suggest you take a look at the uh, filmography of Mr. Pierce. Yeah. So, where we last left him off, and I think clear back in episode one, mm-hmm. um, he had convinced Mr. Ledwell of Ledwell and Son Enterprises to put up the money for the movie, which ended up being about $100,000 out of, uh, I think, $160,000 total. I've, I've seen different numbers floating around. But that's still, like, more than half, and that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, with Ledwell on the hook for funding most of the film, Pierce went to work on what was arguably his second most important task, which was to establish the authenticity of the movie. Can I just say it's really odd to be discussing Squatchkin and using the term authenticity, and have we discussed discussed the term Squatchkin already? I don't think we've actually talked about squat, uh, Squatchkin. Okay, well, one of the things I wanted to bring up is, like, you know, this creature is about as dangerous as the infamous Butter Squatch, but, like, uh, the Squatchkin is kind of my new term for any of these big hairy bipeds because uh, BH... Uh, what is it? Uh, big hairy... BHBPs is kind of a mouthful to remember, so I'm just kind of going with Squatchkin. I like it. It's it's nice. I think it's marketable, trademarkable, and uh, anyone that would like to contact us about merchandising, check out our website for contact links. I, I just keep thinking of like a, a kid's toy commercial, you know, get your Squatchkins at Walmart. <laughs> we promise Charles Lee Ray has not possessed one of her dolls. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I like that. Squatchkin yeah. is pretty cute. We could probably yeah. do a whole bunch. Oh, oh, that gives me an idea for a t-shirt. Ooh. Uh, instead of Care Bears, it's just little miniature chibi forms of different... Oh my god, you have got to draw those. I will give you a cut of any t-shirt sales we get from that dude, I promise. Alright, we're going to have to make that work, you know. And and just give each each little Squatchkin his own little attitude. It would be so cute. Oh, absolutely. I just discovered we have a name for the one here in Mississippi. It's the Mississippi Mudfoot. Nice. That's a good one. I like that one. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be great. So, and it's alliterative. That's even I better. No. So let's let's move on before we get like sidetracked into marketing, <laughs> like uh, Pierce was. Okay. So um, <laughs> one of, one of the goals was to establish authenticity, and you point out that it's kind of odd to discuss authenticity, but you also have to kind of take that into account because he's relying on local lore and everything like right. that. And he kind of needs them, even though he's making the movie, he needs them to kind of right. verify that, oh yeah, these are things that are happening. Yeah, you've got to do, you've got to like establish like, you know, I'm not just making this up. You want the people involved. Yeah, and it, because he uh, he is going to turn to that uh, documentary style, that's mm-hmm. even more important. So, so in order to do this, to establish this authenticity, Pierce sought the cooperation of the local pe- uh, people of Falk. Mm-hmm. But it proved more difficult than initially expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the problem was nobody was interested. <laughs> Pierce stated that, quote, they didn't want to make a movie, they didn't ask for money, they didn't want anything, they wanted to be left alone, in fact, end quote. <laughs> Look, having been into rural Mississippi, I have got to wonder how many shotgun barrels he has stared down while trying to get this thing made, because... I mean, I just had to turn around in a guy's driveway, and this guy came out with a fucking double-barrel shotgun aimed at my car. I'm sure you've pointed a gun at a mailman or two. Uh, it, me? <laughs> no! Yeah, you. Never. Yeah, no. yeah you're, gr- you're a Mississippi boy. Look, my it, grandpa, at some point, you're just like, get off my property. Uh, not me. My grandpa, I can't make any promises. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, yeah. So you know, get the sense that uh, you get the sense of these rural, uh, these rural people didn't really want to be involved or draw any attention to themselves. Yeah. But Pierce was persistent. You know, seeking to strike while the iron was hot, but facing disinterest in the town, he pursued his project anyway. So he he made that good faith effort to kind of get in touch with people. Didn't work didn't work out so well at first. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, like you said, these are quiet rural people. And they just want to live their lives and not be counted on the census. Yeah, they want their broods to be somewhat anonymous. I mean, and seriously, how many stills do they have to cover for? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, eventually, Pierce did find uh, did find some locals who would talk to him, um, and some who would even help out with the movie. Uh, some locals would take him around to locations of their own sightings. And that's cool. Uh, but, yeah. But most wanted to kind of like remain anonymous and refuse to be in the reenactments of their stories. Mm-hmm. Pierce ultimately agreed to that, realizing that he would need to cast different people for the reenactments if he was going to make the film work. Uh, look, I'm I'm just going to say I can't imagine Smokey has the acting chops of say Brian Cox. <laughs> so I can imagine he needs some quote actors. You know, and what we'll find is even though Smokey has a pretty significant role in the film behind the scenes... Which is great. Uh, yeah, he, he isn't uh, on screen for too long in the film itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, Pierce does a couple of research trips, uh, and he, he finds he's ready to move on. So he hires a local advertising associate named Earl E. Smith, uh, who was in Texarkana, to help pen the script. At this point, the working title of the film was... Quote, tracking the Falk monster, end quote. And the documentary concept was pretty much set then. Not gonna lie, I think the title they went with was stronger. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, it has more mystique to it. Mm-hmm. So, the plan was to use overdubbing to stitch narration over the documentary, uh, documentary footage and reenactments, which was useful given the lack of any real actors involved with the film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and overdub they did. Narration, folk songs, wonderful shots of a guy in a ghillie suit playing in the river. They really did, like, they they played to their weaknesses, <laughs> if you know what I mean. They yeah, really, I mean, this is like no-budget filmmaking in like, and, the best way possible. Yeah, absolutely. They definitely knew where their weaknesses were, and they covered them as best they could. Yeah. Now, one of the key figures in helping Pierce achieve this uh, film was Smokey Crabtree. Who didn't um, have shit to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so he quickly began to give Pierce and Smith tours around Falk and the surrounding terrain. And in fact, um, one interesting component of this, Smokey's knowledge of the waterways of the Mercer Bayou was key in Pierce being able to shoot so much B-roll of the natural landscapes. And some of this is the most beautiful stuff in the movie. You're not wrong, man. I mean, honestly, if you take the monster out of this, this entire film is a commercial for Visit Falk, which makes <laughs> sense if you consider that everybody has this marketing background. It's all, It really is almost a tourism commercial. Yeah, you know, and it, it really is, because like when you see the landscape in the film, because uh, I've seen some of the 4K restoration of it, Ooh. Um, and it's beautiful. Like, um, even for like a 1970s, like 16 millimeter camera. Oh, yeah. 
like the the shots are just gorgeous and like the color it's all natural and it's it's a very enchanting sort of landscape oh it is it's gorgeous it makes me want to go buy a pack of uh marlboro menthols yeah oh <laughs> uh, so um Smokey's association with the film carried some other benefits as well so last time we discussed the terrifying encounter of Lynn Crabtree, Smokey's yes. son, with the Falcon Monster, where uh, uh, the kid had taken like three shots at the head of the the creature, and, and it didn't phase it, and mm-hmm. they came back and they found you know shot that like shot they, the they trees, saw the, the yeah. yeah they shot they they found the a- small animal shot in the tree and everything mm-hmm. like that like exactly like at eight feet where the head would have been yeah right so the thing is Lynn. Um, just forever after Lynn was still very much rattled by the encounter right. and absolutely refused to be in the documentary. Yeah. However, Smokey's other son, because there's always another crab tree, um, <laughs> Travis stood in for his brother for the reenactment. Right. And beyond that, Smokey would come in handy in other ways. You know, he was a liaison for the film for the local residents. And he also helped to cast the movie at the local gas station. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hey, Ernest. Hey, man. Hey. You want to be in this movie when you finish that tater log? Man, come on. Come on over here. Come on. Finish that thing. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to go ahead and quote Pierce from an interview uh, with Fangoria. Oh, Which, like, number one, I love Fangoria, man. Absolutely. And I love that they they did an interview with him. That's great. Yeah, I mean, because this is an important movie, man. Yeah. In a lot of ways, and we'll see why, but... um, all right, so, so here's what Pierce had to say. Quote, When someone pulled in, we'd say, Now she'd be a good Peggy Sue. And we walk out there to the gas pumps and say, Ma'am, we're shooting a little movie. Would you like to be in it? She'd say, Well, what do I have to do? And I'd say, Oh, you just run across the field out here. We'd get out there to the field and she'd say, What do I do? And I'd say, I want you to come across over there screaming and run real fast. We never did makeup or anything like that unless the creature got on them, and then we put a little ketchup on for the blood. <laughs> kind of like the tater logs. <laughs> and there were plenty of tater logs. What the fuck is a tater log? A t- you've never seen a tater log? It's basically I, like a giant fucking french fry that you get in a gas station down here in the south. What the fuck is a tater I've never it's seen that. It's a deep fried potato like, log, man. Like, I, I've seen, I've seen like, the spiral cut potato, like the potatoes where they, like, like the it's like a port- uh, potato tornado or something like that where mm. it's just they like what the fuck yeah. is that this is like a giant crinkly fry kind of that it's sounds like intri- take- that sounds incredibly dumb it's it's really good like they're super soft and uh but you're mostly just eating like starchy potato and there's yeah. not enough fried element around it no no there is it's it's deep fried like longer than it should be and then you get ketchup with it it's great man i mean that and like it's no wonder you guys lost the war it's no wonder we lost the war it's no wonder we all have diabetes what the fuck are you talking about like seriously it's also one of those things that you're not going to find on a lot of menus unless you're in a gas station that's true that's true okay but as far as the whole, you know, man, we're shooting a movie. You want to be in it? That's I'm really glad this didn't go into like a casting futon situation. I'm just. <laughs> yeah, gonna, yeah, I think you mean ca- uh, casting truck bed. Yeah. <laughs> man, I got me a mattress here in the back of this Ford F100. Casting I think hay bale. You ought to come over. <laughs> God. <laughs> Remember, kids, uh, just say no to being in a movie while buying your big gulp, okay? <laughs> oh my God. 
I don't know. I'm, I'm still hung up on the uh, the tater log. Look, I'm going to have to look that look, up. Everybody needs a Google tater log. I'm just saying, you get like some chicken strips or like some deep fried uh, catfish with your tater logs, and you are set for the day, man. You're not going to have to eat again because we're talking like 6,000 calories. I'm just I'm just thinking of a big French fry, and it concerns me. It is. It's a big it, it, French it fry, and it's the great. fucking candy corn. What? The, the little candy corn pumpkin. It's like it's too much of one thing. No. You only get like two or three. We're not talking about like a whole bag of them. Okay. You see, okay, I'm going to move on. Okay, I'm just, yeah, let's I'm very move concerned. forward because <laughs> you're not going to get it unless you come down here and I take you to a gas station. That's all there is to it. But that's going to be the trip. It's like, that's okay, it. I'm here, Kevin. Let's go to the gas station. Okay, there we go. Okay, so <laughs> so after a while, Pierce did have enough support from the community to make up a sizable volunteer effort, even down to like the local police assisting in roadblocks and supplying vehicles as needed. Which is awesome. Mm-hmm. It became a community affair. So yeah. though the volunteers were not always consistently available, there was a large enough pool that the production was like relatively untroubled. And let me tell you, man, as a filmmaker, the, f- the first day you shoot on an independent film, it really feels like an actual Hollywood production, Hollywood production for a little bit because everybody is there and they all want to see what you're doing and they all think it's going to be glamorous. And then by the fourth day, you've got anybody that's not acting, working crew, and anyone on the crew is playing bit parts. I mean, everybody that was there on that first day suddenly has something else to do that doesn't involve standing there holding a boom mic. It is it is a nightmare. So, <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to be a part of the film until they see like the work that it, that it entails. Yeah, I know. I mean, movies sound really glamorous until you make one, and then you realize this is boring as shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now. As for the Falk monster, Pierce realized the necessity of having the monster present in the film, and he ordered a gorilla suit from a costume warehouse in L.A. Yes. So Pierce and his team supplemented that suit by buying some wigs from a local shop and sewing them onto the head of the gorilla mask to give the beast a shaggier look. And that is shockingly effective, actually. I think their use of lighting really helps that. There are a lot mm-hmm. of, like... Uh, scenes close to like the the magic hour where like it's in silhouette so it just looks like a shaggy monster yeah and like anytime you need you get a close-up on something there's some sort of it's only like a, a hand mm-hmm. or it's, it's, it's like a shoulder or if it's on the eyes you don't see the full face oh yeah no they they definitely uh went with the old horror trope of the less you see the scarier it is yeah, and that that's kind of them recognizing like the weakness and what they had and then mm-hmm. turning that into a strength. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to who wore the suit, um, and I'm following Blackburn's lead here, there were three people who were confirmed. Mm-hmm. So first you had Pierce's brother-in-law, Steve Lyons. Because you always go with family first. Mm-hmm. You had the, produce- the son of the producer, Steve <laughs> Ledwell. He thought this was going to get him into Hollywood. And then you have yet another Crabtree in Keith, Keith Crabtree. Hmm. Um, however, it seems that Keith was uncredited in the final film. Do you think, like, they had to pull him off the water tower with his with his rifle because of that? Like, I, I think he just carried, like, uh, the actress na- uh, who played Mary Beth up the water tower and started doing a King Kong thing. You know what? That's actually... <laughs> 
You know what? We're going to get into the whole biopic thing, but I would include that as a fictional event. There we go. Yeah. So, like, you know, I think we can both agree that, like, the film looks dated today. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, like, it, there's still some gorgeousness to it, but mm-hmm. it definitely feels like an artifact of 1970s independent film. Yeah. You know, largely crude with a cat, uh, largely crude and cast of the local Arkansas swamp people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean that in the most affectionate way possible. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The, the the film was a huge risk at the time, given what would uh, what we would come to know as like the guerrilla style of film craft here. Because mm-hmm. we we'd seen like guerrilla style film before, but mm-hmm. not like I would argue not at this level. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about guerrilla style, I'm not just talking about the rented suit. Yes, absolutely. That's a completely different thing entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, like you know. Yeah, no. I mean, because, like, the only other movie I can think of that was, like, guerrilla style at the time like this was, and I hate to say it, is uh, fucking Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Mm. Yeah, I'm also thinking, what was uh, Warner Herzog making movies back in 1973? Think, or no, he's more of, like, 1980s, wasn't he? Well, I kind of think Herzog's been doing films since Moses was alive, but yes. Right. You know, so when he filmed Nosferatu, it's just he he's like, "Hey, Max, you, you already did that movie. Let's make ours." Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you know, in in a lot of ways, the film is very quaint. Yes. And it's pretty relaxing, actually. Mm-hmm. But there's also this kind of real quality to it that can be super unnerving. Mm-hmm. You know, so let, let's take for example all those beautiful shots of the swamp and the waterways around Texarkana. You know haunting in their beauty but when taken in conjunction with the folk music score you know it's very it's very kind of whimsical um, in a way it's whimsical but then you think about like what you're seeing and you think about the isolation and density seen in these moments you know the density of the the landscape you can envision something living out there and for many people they can confirm as much I, you're not wrong. This, I mean, the movie does a fantastic job of sort of blurring the line on how seriously you're meant to take this because you're faced with like a, a sighting or an attack or something, and then you're treated to like five minutes of folk music with beautiful footage, mm-hmm. and and but it really does have this underlying menace mm-hmm. that something's out here. Like it never draw, calls into question the reality of the situation. Yeah, and you know, I I would have a hard time thinking of Charles B. Pierce as a believer in this, but he yeah. doesn't disparage those who do. Oh no, God no. So while the film was crafted primarily to entertain, and some liberties are taken for the subject. Blackburn confirms that many of the moments from the film have a sort of researchable base story upon which they are derived. Mm-hmm. So that's part of that whole authenticity angle. Yes. That, like he, he can, he can, uh, Pierce can go back and say, well, it's, uh, this moment's actually based on this thing that happened in uh, 1964. Yeah, I mean, that says, a, that says a lot about Pierce, but that really says a lot about Blackburn as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, Blackburn writes in this book that, quote, after extensive research, I've been able to correlate most of the scenes to something that was either reported in the newspaper or circulated by word of mouth. Right. And, uh, like, the level of research that Blackburn does in this book is super impressive. Um, so, like, yeah, like, you could tell he, he did that research. Yes. So, so while the film does have, like, these dramatic embellishments... 
the roots of real events and stories of this community are very much present and recognizable. And that's and and I think that's one of the reasons that it stands out so much is because it's never like a uh, it's never something that's completely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's always like something with enough grain of salt that you're you're questioning it. Right. Yeah. So we've talked about some of the scenes in previous episodes that kind of filter into Pierce's documentary, but I just want to bring up a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple other ones we haven't talked about yet. So um, the film begins with a scene in which the narrator is seen as a child fleeing to Willie Smith, uh, Willie Smith's gas station. Uh, this would probably be the monster Mart. Um, <laughs> yes. Right. Um, so he flees to Willie Smith's gas station, seeking help as he and his mother had seen, um, a, you know, a, a creature near their farm. Right. Now the boy is played by Charles Pierce's son, Chuck Pierce. Of course he is. Yeah. You know, because you know, that's, that's I need what you do. You go to, like I said, you go to family first. Hey, hey, Junior, get out there. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. So um, the scene in question is based on a very similar, like, real story. Um, a local mother in the 1960s sent her seven-year-old kid into town. It was like a two-and-a-half-mile walk by himself. Jesus um, Christ. Yeah, to inform their landlord that there was a sighting of a large-haired creature near their home. Look, I can ha- I have one kid. I can have me another kid. Yeah, and- I got the messenger kid. If I lose one, I, yeah, I got the other. And the good news is if he survives, he can bring me back some tater logs. They're like homing pigeons. Yeah, they always make <laughs> it home. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, like, the, the reason I bring up this scene is because mm-hmm. so many of the sequences in the movie are like this, where there's a core event derived from, like, interviews or articles, but tweaked slightly to convey the story Pierce wishes to tell. Right. Because um, the whole movie is um, narrated by this this child, all grown up. Right. And the child's talking about, like, well, here's all the things we saw in Falk. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing inherently wrong with this, but it is important to note that the events of the legend of Bucky Creek are not one to one with reported incidents, and it couldn't have helped the population growth. Yeah. Um. So an- another thing we want to talk about, and a personal favorite for both of us, is the <laughs> world class hunting dogs. Oh man, I cannot explain to you how much I love the world famous hunting dogs in this film. I mean, there must have been like Ren Ten Ten, Canine Cop. Lassie, Astro from the Jetsons. I don't know. Like, it's just great. Yeah, and it's it's funny because, you know, we make such a big deal out of this, but not a whole lot happens with them, but no. it's just something inherently hilarious about all of this. Yeah, like, they really emphasize how famous these dogs were. Yeah. It's just one of those <laughs> so, weird um, things. The, the, the scene in question follows up on a number of encounters by having uh, the people of Falk form this hunting party. Mm-hmm. And there had been a couple, like, hunting parties throughout, like, the 60s and, sure. uh, like, early 70s because, you know, it's like, okay, well, let's go take a look for this thing. So, yeah, I'm going to quote Blackburn here. Mm-hmm. In this scene, a group of hunters and law officials set out on foot and horseback, accompanied by world-class tracking dogs, in an attempt to flush out the solitary brute. Now, now this whole this whole sequence is based on an amalgamation of searches, but what we really want to focus on here is that these dogs are a big deal in the movie, <laughs> hilariously so. Yes. So, so to begin with, many of the dogs in the film were the very same dogs involved in some of those real searches prior to the movie. <laughs> oh, the same dogs. It's like so, Weird Al getting the same janitor in the freaking uh, uh, Nirvana video. 
<laughs> uh, and then, you know, these are also like major prized dogs from Arkansas, Texas, and Tennessee. Yeah. So they, they build up like the pedigree of these dogs and like just how great these dogs are. Mm-hmm. And the scene culminates with the dogs terrified to give chase to the creature and they like turn tail and run away. All right. Look, I've, I've got a really sneaky suspicion that these dogs were the most expensive talent in the film. And by God, they were going to film them. They got paid more than Smokey did. Oh, I guarantee you they got paid more than Smokey did because these dogs don't accept moonshine for payment. <laughs> well, I can imagine like a Tennessee hunting dog would probably drink moonshine pretty easily. You know what? You're not wrong. I'm not going to yeah. lie. <laughs> so, you know, um, just something about that dog scene. It's like ultimately yes. very inconsequential. Uh-huh. Um, like the movie could probably do without it, but it also kind of sets up that like, oh yeah, even the dogs are afraid of this thing. You know what? I don't think it could. I think it's needed. I, I don't think I would have enjoyed the film nearly as much without the famous hunting dogs. Oh, okay. Yeah. I derive way too much enjoyment from these, these hunting dogs. So yeah, you're, you're probably right here. Yeah. So, um, there's another fun scene in the movie that follows the second of two songs in the film. <laughs> So there, there are two uh, major folk music numbers in the film, right. and one of them is "Hey Travis Crabtree, Wait a Minute for Me." Yes. And so I would like to play that for us. Oh, you're in luck, David. I've got it queued up right now, and I think we can both hear it with our recording gear. So I'm gonna play it right mm-hmm. now, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody sees the flowers but me. Slash. Hey, Travis Crabtree from the legend of Boggy Creek. Why are there so many <laughs> songs about rainbows? Damn it, Kermit. Hey, Travis Crabtree. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's go I love that. I love it, man. Yeah. Back where the fish are biting. Where the fish are biting. Where all the world's inviting. <laughs> and nobody sees the flowers bloom but me. You know, I would have liked to have heard uh, Burl Ives cover this. You, you haven't lived until you've heard Joe Bob Briggs sing it. Has he sang this? Yes, yes, on the uh, last drive-in. Oh. Um, yeah, he I've did got, a whole musical number. It was beautiful. Oh, I've got Shudder. I'm going to go back and look at that. Unfortunately, you cannot. The Boggy Creek episode is no longer on Shudder. Balls. Yes. Balls, indeed. Now, I want to point out, during this scene, we're watching him put dead, dead fish into a sack. <laughs> and uh, I think I have this jacket. We'll have to post the video in the uh, notes. Yes. Oh my god, yeah. And then the wah wah trumpets coming in. The yellow eyed sky, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Is he about to start talking about how it's a shame we lost the war? Oh, there's them, there's them eggs cooked over an open fire. Yep. I've made eggs like this. Oh, man. I love that I it says... I made eggs on the sidewalk once. 
I love that it says Vicks Vapor Rub on this box, and Vicks is crossed out. It says Dickens. Didn't even notice that. Yeah, I'm just sitting here going, like, nobody's going to see Vicks. <laughs> the guy singing it, I forget his name, but, like, he, he's putting it out there, man. He's, oh, he's he giving is. it to that song. This is like the guy that did the Pokemon theme and the amount yeah, of, like, right. effort that he put into <laughs> it. That was That was honestly beautiful and painful all at once and i love it i mean and it seriously it kind of gets you in that mood where it's like well maybe i want to go camping you, you know it's it's a very comforting song and that's the weird thing about the legend of boggy creek it really is, is. it's a bizarre it's, mixture it's about a scary skunk ape but at the same time you've got travis crabtree in his canoe yep and they got the folk music in the background hey travis crabtree yeah no it's great <laughs> I mean, there's nothing I don't like about that song except the song. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's very conflicting. Yeah. So, so let's move on from that lovely little song to something completely different. Yes. About a man with, uh, with a disability. Yeah. This guy, <laughs> man. Holy shit, this guy. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, they play the song, and then they kind of follow Travis Crabtree as he visits a man named Herb Jones. Herb. One of those wonderfully authentic oddities in the film. Oh, yeah. So, Jones played himself, and was notable for having lived in a shack on the bayou for 20 years, which has since been reclaimed by the landscape. You know, I don't think never uh, nature actually claimed it to begin with. I think it's more of it just encroached on it, and it's there. <laughs> I don't think nature wanted anything to do with anything that happened in this shack. <laughs> so, um, Jones, in, in the film, he is presented as a skeptic. He never claimed to have seen the monster in the swamp, mm -hmm. but he did have his own shocking encounter with his own gun. <laughs> he uh, accidentally shot himself in the leg a long time prior to the film. He was he was fumbling with the, the gun in the canoe, um, and like it, it got pointed at his leg, and something had pulled the trigger, and it blew his leg off. <laughs> Look, that thing that pulled his trigger was probably called a finger. Right. I You know, I don't know, but... Um, you know, here's the thing. Given his isolation, yeah. he was forced to crawl several miles through the swamp for help. Now, this isn't really important to the episode overall, but I just want to point out how fucking hard scrabble these people can be. Jesus Christ. Didn't Liam Neeson do a movie about this guy or something? I would not be surprised. Jesus. Herb so, you Jones, know <laughs> played by Liam Neeson in the upcoming movie, man, fuck the swamp. Right? It just, From it, it's a, it's a very... You know, and it, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with our, our monster, but I just feel like it's an important story to share, especially yeah. because the, the scene with him immediately follows, like, the the, the, uh, the Travis Crabtree song. So yeah. it's just, it's kind of weird. Yeah. It's like, okay, here's this whimsical <laughs> little song about a guy enjoying nature out in the woods. Now here's Herb. Yeah, Herb's, Herb's going to tell you about his fucking leg. The guy who lives in the swamp for 20 years. Yeah. On a little yeah. island. He lived in that swamp, and you know what? I'm willing to wager he fucking died in that swamp. Probably. <laughs> um, so, 
you know, there's those, those couple of scenes are important, but I want to kind of turn back to an event that we had talked about last time we were together. Oh, yes. Which was the Don Ford, Charles Taylor incident. Mm-hmm. Which serves as, like, the conclusion and, like, the dramatic capper for The Legend of Boggy Creek. What well, is really the most dramatic encounter we covered, period. Yeah, I, I yeah. think so. So, you know, it's largely accurate to the spirit of the event, but, mm-hmm. you know, there are some slight changes. Nothing overly dramatic with the exception of how the scene ends. So, again, it's like mm-hmm. that idea of the kernel of truth and Pierce tweaking it to fit the narrative that he needs, right. that he wants in the film. Yeah. So, um, after shooting off the creature in the... Uh, movie we get a scene with bobby ford taking time to think over the night's terror on the toilet which is where else yeah you know so you know you just you nearly shit yourself dealing with a a moon ape so you're like okay i need to i need to i need to take care of myself yes so so this is what you call self-care in arkansas right (laughs) you know you know thankfully they had indoor plumbing yes I cannot tell you how big of a problem that actually is sometimes out here. So, here again, the monster returns, ripping off the window of the bathroom and reaching in for Bobby, who scrambles out. Again, possibly the greatest toilet scene ever filmed, and this is worth going through in the entire movie for. I, I could literally see this happening to one of my uncles. And this was something that really affected your dad, right? Oh, yeah. No, this is a scene where my dad had been telling me about this since I was a wee nip. And then I finally saw it, and I was like, no, I get it. I get it. If I was, I'll never forget my dad turned and looked at me after the scene, because I'm just staring at the screen, and he just goes, yeah, look, there wasn't a lot to do out in Smith County back in the 70s. This was like the talk of the neighborhood, okay? Oh, it's great. It's oh, fantastic. No, it is. Like, it, seriously, you, you need to watch the movie just for that scene alone. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, that, that kind of covers the movie itself. I mean, we could probably go further, but also we don't need to because we're three episodes into this. Yeah, you just need to go watch the damn movie. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's super cheap on YouTube and everything like yeah. that. It's a fun night. It is a fun it night. Is. Get yourself some snow caps and some popcorn. Yeah. Get yourself some uh, whiskey or something and just watch a skunk ape movie. Yeah. So, I want to transition here to like what happened after the movie came out, and I want to talk about some later sightings. Yes, yes. Let's talk about the aftermath of the film a little bit. So... The story of the finishing touches for the premiere of The Legend of Boggy Creek, it, it's a great story. Yeah. But I want to leave that for Lyle Blackburn's book. Because, uh, you know, I, I think people need to buy this book. I agree. I do want to quote Pierce regarding the premiere, though. Okay. Now, Pierce stated that, quote, There were people lined up for four or five blocks. People had brown bag lunches with them because they knew they couldn't get into the next showing, but they didn't want to lose their place in line. I knew it was going to work when they started laughing and getting excited and screaming whatever, whenever that booger jumped out. <laughs> I got a G rating, and so the kids were there screaming, and it was scaring the devil out of them. I knew I had a winner. I, Man, that has got to be the best feeling in the world. You, you did exactly what you set out to do. Mm-hmm. You made a movie anybody can watch because of the G rating. Mm-hmm. I am legitimately proud of this guy for this. 
Yeah, because I'm thinking we even mentioned the fact that the film is rated G. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still very creepy and effective for being it a G-rated is. film. It's a G-rated film, but there's nothing gory about it. It's something you can take a kid to and then take him to therapy years later. Yeah, and it, it's it's because of that documentary, that, that search for authenticity that kind of drove the film is yeah. why it worked as a PG or as a, a G-rated horror film. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and there's a lot of people that will argue, well, a horror movie has to be R. And I stand by the fact that, no, it doesn't, because just mm-hmm. watch this. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Pierce thought he had a winner, and mm-hmm. he certainly did have a winner. The film stands out in the memories of many kids in the 1970s. Um, I would say some are, uh, some of the adults are still with us. Yes. And also earned around $20 million in the 1972 box office. That's good. Becoming Yeah, it became the 10th highest grossing film of 1972. That was the same year Alien came out. Holy crap. Right? Yeah. Um, so in 1975, the film earned close to 5 million on theatrical rentals in North America alone. That look, speaking as someone who's getting on in years Mm -hmm. to this day, people around here are still talking about this movie who were alive back then. I don't think I can explain to people outside of the Southeast, just how big a deal this movie was here in the South of the United States. And I can't explain the impression it left on the people that saw it. I mean, my dad was not alone in that. One of my co-workers, I was just talking about, like, you know, the episodes we're recording right now. He's like, well, what are you working on? Well, we're working on part three of the Falk Monster. And he's like, holy shit, I saw The Legend of Boggy Creek when I was a kid, and I still remember that movie. That part where that arm came in th- came through and got that guy in the toilet. And I was like... Okay, well, that's everything you need to know right there. Anybody of a certain age is going to remember this movie. Everybody's going to remember the arm, Mm -hmm. and they're going to remember Hey, Travis Crabtree. Yeah, no, you're not wrong, because he started humming Hey, Travis Crabtree, and I was like, holy Mm -hmm. shit. It's one of those movies that I think everybody should see at least once. You yeah. know, you know, you may not love it, yeah, but you'll you'll have an appreciation of it and what it's doing. You might think it's like a little old, a little hokey, sure, but but there's there's something monumentally important about it in a it, lot of ways. It is, and you know what it kind of reminds me of? Hmm. It reminds me of when Oh Brother Where Art Thou came out. And it was mm-hmm. filmed in Mississippi, and it took place in Mississippi, and it played in the local theater for two years. Oh, wow. Because everybody just kept going to see it. Yeah. So no, it's kind of like totally see that huge cultural impact in the area where it took place. Yeah. So, you know, I want to share one quote from a review that I think explains why the film worked so well. So you and I you and I have been talking about why we think the film works right, so well. Right. But here here's a quote from Glenn Lovell of the Hollywood Reporter. Which that's that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So he wrote the film captures the eerie beauty of Arkansas's primal uh, primeval swamps and contains images of Southern American backwoods life unmatched in its rich rustic flavor since Robert Flaherty's Louisiana story. Pierce's photography accents the Arkansas swamplands' incredible beauty and unsettling mystery, an unusual blend of malevolence and melancholia, eminently successful in giving the imagination a good, healthy jolt 
and in ultimately celebrating the unfathomable mysteries of nature. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah. I think his background in advertising literally sold this movie and its subject. Yeah, and then just like I love that bit in the quote, unusual blend of malevolence and melancholia because yeah. like all those shots, you know, on the water table. Mm-hmm. You know, and just you, you get that like, okay, there there could be something out there, but also you don't mind it so much, you know, if it's right. just do out there doing its thing, let it be happy, like let it yeah, have the beautiful land. Leave the son of a bitch alone. I mean, I've driven through Arkansas through those areas and if it's out there, I it can have it. Yeah. So I, I just I thought that was a pretty emblematic quote and it, I think it hits up on a lot of stuff that you and I have talked about in the series right Absolutely. And I, I just I like that we're all on sort of the same wave wavelength with this thing. Yeah, we're all on the same swamp water length a wavelength. Yes, this horrible, <laughs> yeah. scummy pond ridden uh, yep. wavelength. I don't know if that's bird shit or, or algae. I just don't know which. It's something. All I know is it's lapping up against my feet, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> The film would go on to spawn sequels, as any successful film does. Right. Um, it would spawn. It would spawn imitators and influence filmmakers for decades. So, in 1977, an unofficial sequel called "Return to Boggy Creek," directed by Tom Moore, featured Don Wells and Dana Plato. I and had nothing much to do with Pierce's film. Look, I can't hate it if it's got like Marianne in it. Right. Right. I mean. Come on, man. And it's not terrible, honestly. It's it's, it's an okay just, movie. It's just um, not but it the just same. it has nothing to do with what Pierce did. Yeah. So in two thousand eleven, Brian T. James's Boggy Creek, The Legend is Real, positioned itself as a sequel to The Legend of Boggy Creek. It was not. You get that <laughs> a lot with these like unlicensed sequels. <laughs> that uh that's that's about the best criticism I could hear about a film is like it positioned itself as a sequel, and it was not right. Yeah, um, there was one official sequel, right. which was in 1985, directed by Charles B. Pierce and starring him, oh and boy. that was Boggy Creek Two and The Legend Continues. <laughs> now there is some debate as to whether like the numbering of two is accurate as, as people suggest, like return to boggy Creek was a sequel that should be counted. But I author, uh, you know, I offer that's unauthorized and had no input for Pierce. So it's kind of like Halloween. You just pick a continuity. Yeah. I'm just going with the first movie. And then this, the, uh, the more recent ones on that one. So I I would probably also throw away boggy Creek too, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I, yeah. You know what? It's kind of like Highlander. It's like, damn, wish they made some good sequels to that. Oh, well, right. Yeah. So, so what is known for sure is that boggy Creek two is not as good as Pierce's original directorial efforts. Brother, you can Uh, say that again. (laughs) Some might argue it is downright bad. Yep. What is good, however, is that it gave us a fantastic episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) So, with that, I want to sum up Boggy Creek 2 with a quote from Bill Corbett, Crow T. Robot slash Brain Guy himself. Yes, I love this quote, by the way. This quote is so fantastic. So, quote, It's the kind of movie that seems to hate you, to wish you active harm, to kick sand in your eyes and make you cry. 
And for me, this was personified by Mr. Charles B. Pierce, who is apparently responsible for every single aspect, every nanosecond, of this cruel and unusual <laughs> bit of celluloid. He chose to write and play a grim, hostile, <laughs> condescending know-it-all of a man, a character who has proven superior to everyone else in the story again and again, who drills his lousy, stinking voiceover narrative into our beds every freaking second of the film, and who then has the temerity to wrap his movie up suggesting his sour Nazi of a character is really an ecological servant of God. <laughs> yeah, no... <laughs> Oh god, that killed me. Seriously, there's there's like every line Pierce says in this vo- this movie could is silently followed up with you dumb bastards. But I mean, there is a lot of ball hugging tennis shorts in this film as well. Yeah, and it also and, returns uh Chuck Pierce. Yes. Because his son, who plays in the first film, comes back to play the the research assistant in this one. Oh, and he's wearing like the tightest, shortest tennis shorts. The and he always takes his shirt off. There is so much just yeah, yeah. Take your shirt off for this scene. Like it's it's kind of very bizarre. And I hope I never see this fashion trend again. At least not on people like Pierce. I mean, there's some people I wouldn't mind seeing that on, but. Definitely not a dude in your 50s in an RV looking for skunk apes. This movie was so... its not, I mean, it's not even a fucking documentary. It's literally yeah. just a horror movie. And, like, do you get the feeling like the bad guy was based on Herb a little bit? I You know, when I f- picture Herb Powell, like, if I just think about him, I think of the guy in the, the one-strap... Um, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the guy who had his little island who had the baby Sasquatch, yeah. yeah, 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 the little squatchkin locked up in the back bedroom, yeah. I don't know what he's been doing with it, but I don't want to know, yeah. Let's not right. go there, we're gonna move but, on, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it was definitely like a misstep, you know. Oh, Pierce, oh, like, oh. overall, very strong career, but like that one part Creek of it too like what the hell happened what the hell happened is he got so pissed at people making money off the movie he did he was like well if everybody else can make money off of it so can i god damn it yeah again it's, followed it's... by a silent you dumb bastards <laughs> uh but you know give me a chance to read that bill corbett quote which is oh, oh god yes it's, it's oh like I, I watch a lot of like drag stuff so you yeah. know shade shade is super important to me sure it's part of my well, language and just like the shade being thrown bill in corbett that quote. and kevin murphy are two of the most scathing critics of some of these films and mm-hmm. i love them for it Speaking of, uh, real quick before we move on, Kevin Murphy has a book called A Year at the Movies that he did uh, before the September 11th attacks, and it is a fantastic book where every day he has to watch a film on film, and he travels all over the world to do it. He eats Thanksgiving dinner in a theater, having fold-up tables and Tupperware stuff in a trench coat sneaking into a theater. It's just an amazing book. Oh, that sounds so good. He also describes uh, having appendicitis as God reaching his hand down and placing a nuclear baked potato in his abdomen. Oh, Jesus. So, definitely read the book if you can find it. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. So, okay, so obviously something went south on Boggy Creek, too. (laughs) Yes. However, 
The legacy of Charles B. Pierce's original monster movie is powerful. The film was a major attraction of the drive-in circuit and has been in the news a bit recently as well. Right. So, it was one of the movies chosen for what was supposed to be the final Joe Bob's Brig Mar- uh, Joe Bob Briggs marathon on Shutter. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that episode, they actually had Lyle Blackburn guest to share some of uh, some of his insights on the Falcon Monster research. And he also joined Joe Bob for a rendition of Hey, Travis Crabtree. Oh my god, that's just um, fucking and I'm, adorable. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. It's beautiful. I'll, I'm gonna Wonderful. find it, because that's, that's just pleasant to think about. Yeah, it, it's, um, you can tell, like, Joe Bob is a big fan of the movie, and, like, oh, you yeah. know, um, you know, because it, it's a drive-in movie, you know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's like the perfect movie you want to watch sitting in your car in a darkened drive-in area. Yes. Maybe there's some trees around you and everything like that. Maybe but, there's you know. a swamp. Yeah, maybe it's by the swamp. <laughs> um, so, you know, the film was also like a huge inspiration for uh, Daniel Merrick's 1999 The Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Which, you know, which I've really come around toward. Like, there are other ones I could, like, leave, but, like, that original Blair Witch Project, for what it is, excellent. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's... After everybody starts imitating it, you get tired of it. But after that whole spate of garbage is done, you can go back to the original and appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it. so obviously, like, Blair Witch Project, kind of like that documentary style. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see a whole generation of filmmakers who are inspired by what Boggy Creek did. Right. Like, I, I'd even say, like like, Cloverfield, for example, is one of those films that... Yeah, definitely yeah. a documentary, found footage type thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2018, Pamela Pierce, Charles's daughter, obtained the rights to her father's film from Stephen Ledwell of Ledwell and Son. So, The Son. Yes. Um, since then, the film was remastered and officially re-released on DVD and Blu-ray with a 4K restoration and has enjoyed several screenings, such as on Texarkana's Charles B. Pierce Day. That is awesome, and it will also be playing at the Bigfoot Birthday Bash in Natchez. And you're probably going to see that 4K restoration, I, which... Yes, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I hope I get to see it. Yeah, I would love to see, like, a 4K restoration. Because I've only seen, like, clips, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'll skip Harry and the Hendersons, but uh, if they start playing Boggy, Pre- Boggy Creek, man, they got me. Oh, man, I hope they do, like, a Rocky Horror thing where everybody oh. starts singing Hey, Travis Crabtree. Oh, God, that'd be great. All the, and I all hope the they have someone come in in a gorilla suit and start. No, that'd be great. That's what we need to do is we need to launch, like, the Rocky Horror experience, but for The Legend of Rocky yeah. Creek. We can have, like, someone can hold up, like, a, a window you get at Home Depot and someone can reach their gorilla hand through it. <laughs> oh, oh, you throw toilet paper in the screen, uh, at the screen when... He goes to the bathroom. Well, gonna have to send a Facebook message to the organizers now. All right. (laughs) Next year, baby. Next year. There you go. (laughs) So, now, while we're gonna kind of, like, divert away from the enormous enormous legacy and influence of uh, Charles B. Pierce's monster film, we should realize that for many of us listening, our visual language and perception of the swampy Bigfoot Mm -hmm. is gonna be forever colored by this movie. 
Yeah. When I, you know, when I read these encounters, my mind immediately sees them through the lens of Charles B. Pierce. Like yeah. I see the film grain. You know, what I, I mean? was just gonna say I see the film grain. I see the beautiful lighting effects from from filming at sunset. It's seriously yes. Yeah. I see the guy in the gorilla suit with the wig stapled to him. <laughs> Straight through the mask into my forehead, baby. Come on, let's do this yep. like Harrison yep. Ford in that I sacrifice for my art. Yes. <laughs> so. You know, it's an enormous legacy that this man and his movie, you know, have. They occupy a major seat in the council of the most important movies in drive-in cinema. Yes. Like, hands down. And to accomplish that with a G-rated monster romp with a gorilla suit and a cast of crew of locals in a small swamp town is an incredible story. I, you're, yes, absolutely. I, I cannot say this enough. The making of this film is a shockingly good feel-good story that needs to be told. And I still think we need to do a biopic about Pierce called The Legend of the Legend of Boggy Creek, and it needs to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think uh, biopics are always huge, but I think like a biopic about the independent film scene through this, you know, and yeah, you know, it would have that kind of tongue in cheek manner to it, but it would still be like it have those emotional moments. Yeah, like you'd have the scene with Charles, like at the back of the drive in. And hearing laughter from the cars. Yeah, no, seriously. Do it in the style of Dolomite is my name or something. Get yes, Will, get yes. Will Ferrell. I don't care. Will Ferrell as Charles B. Pierce would be actually very, very good. I agree. I think it needs to be done like that. You know, we, we should just write the fucking screenplay. You know what? I'm with you. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit, because we've talked about so much about, like, prior to the 1970s. I want to talk yeah. about um, something a, a little more recent. Day. Yeah. Because the sightings of the creature haven't stopped. Which is awesome. Yeah. So, you know, the Boggy Creek Monsters allure and mystique didn't fade away with the movie leaving the drive-in circuit. Mm-hmm. Beyond inspiring other films, the creature continued to be sighted and pulled many cryptid hunters and researchers into Falk's orbit. Mm-hmm. So, um... I have Lyle Blackburn's book, but it only covers up through about 2010. So mm. between 1973 and 2010, based on his research, there have been 39 sightings related to what we know as the Beast of Boggy Creek. That's a fucking lot in the world right. of cryptozoology. Now, I came up kind of a kind of a dry post-2010, mm-hmm. and I'd probably need more time to research that because I have to dig up like local news reports. Right. However, Blackburn does have a second book called Boggy Creek Casebook Falk Monster Encounters 1908 to Present, published in 2020. So I expect that has some fun and interesting information. I smell a follow-up sometime next year. Oh, that could be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. So we're getting to the end here. I want to wrap up with two brief stories that I think are kind of great to kind of summarize what we've done here. Absolutely. So one of the stories is an encounter... The other one is kind of a example of the hokey artifice that lurks under everything we've talked about over the course of these three episodes. Okay. So, first I want to discuss a 1990s sighting that is particularly dramatic and vibrant and shows that you can't keep uh, you can't keep a good swamp ape down. Well, that's a fucking Broadway show waiting to happen that will be better than Cats, and I'm happy we'll, about that. We'll make that musical number in our screenplay. Hey, there you go. The new Hey Travis Crowtree is You Can't Keep a Good Swampy Down. There you go. Yeah. So now, Blackburn mentions that 
printed reports about the Falk monster were hard to come by, uh, yeah. uh, like in the 1980s or so. Things changed in the 1990s. Obviously, we can probably attribute a lot of that spread to the internet. And right? get that and the gradual encroaching on unspoiled lands because there's been a lot of development in Arkansas, a lot of mm -hmm. places that were small towns are developing into college towns. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily Falk, but, you know, there's, there is some encroachment into the bayous and swamps now. Yeah, so that naturally there's going to be some yeah. uh, there's going to be some growth of the population, but also like communication gets a little more clear. I think everybody Absolutely. was too high on coke in the 1980s. You're not wrong. Now everybody's just drinking natty lights and seeing stuff and post and in the 90s posting about it on Usenet. Yeah, uh, or posting on YouTube. I, I bet you we could find some Falk monster videos on YouTube. Ooh, I know what I'm doing after this. So, you know, what I like about this story, it's like many of the best of the 1970s Falk Flap stories. You know, it's got multiple eyewitnesses, the beast activities are consistent with the other sightings, and the witnesses are super hesitant to come forward about it. Again, you try getting the courage to report a fucking moon ape. Right. So, um, <laughs> around 11 p.m. on October 10th, 1992... Five men were driving out down FM-134. What is FM? That is like uh, a... Farm Muppet. Farm Muppet. Okay, I Farm Muppet really 134. It's, it's going to be like freeway something. I don't something know. freeway motivator. Free, Manwich, I guess. Here we go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're just passing by country... Uh, I'm sorry, County Road 8 yeah. near the McKinney Bayou. Right. So they're driving along. It's at night. It's like a cold October night. Um, and they notice headlights coming towards them from the other side of the, the road, right? right? Not a big deal. Nothing about this unusual until they saw this tall figure crossing the highway. Now, uh -oh. both vehicles hit the brake. One was this vehicle with uh, five guys. I think it was probably a uh, SUV or something like that. Right. Like a Bronco and, or something. Yeah, and then the other vehicle was a semi-truck. Uh-oh. So both the vehicles hit the brakes, and they're surprised to see such like a large hairy creature wandering from the woods from one side of the road into a field on the other side. Shit. Now, obviously, like, it's at night, they're using headlights, you can't get a good look at the thing, but you can tell, if you look at something that's furry, you can tell, like... It's furry. It's furry, right? Because yeah. you have those thin Backlit. wisps of hair. Yeah. <laughs> so, the witnesses describe the creature, which is only about 50 yards away from either of them, uh, as being around 7 feet tall and walking upright. Okay? Pretty consistent with what we've heard before. Mm -hmm. So, the creature seemed content to ignore them, though, never turning back or pausing to look back at the road. Right. Apparently had something he was bound and determined to do. He's yeah, uh, <laughs> something on his mind. He's like, well, yeah, go take a squat out here. <laughs> a Sasquat. Yes. <laughs> Quality so, entertainment. <laughs> so eventually the whole group left their cars and they like got onto the side of the road to try to catch a glimpse of the creature. Most intelligent then, thing they could do. Yeah. So, you know, by the, by the time they got there, like he had disappeared into the moonlit fog. It's it's a very eerie, very haunting sort of, it, it, and the fact there's like six people there. Yes, lots of witnesses. I'm thinking maybe fame went to the creature's head. <laughs> maybe he doesn't have time for these country crackers anymore. Maybe he's 
get a meeting with an agent. You know, and it, it just, you know, the creature was bound and determined to get across that road and did and didn't look back. Yep. This, I mean, you know, what's, what's going to happen? I mean, if they hit him. Yeah. Well, they'll just probably, like, go through him. Yeah, exactly. Because you he's never, probably a ghost. Nobody ever hits a, <laughs> a skunk ape. You know, and that that's the sad part. Yeah. Is it? Really? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe if someone hit a skunk ape, we'd finally have, like, an answer. Well, also, I see, I'm thinking about this more practically. What do you put oh, down for your insurance? You know, what the, the insurance claim is hit skunk ape. What are they going to do? Right, like a deer will completely destroy a car. Oh, yeah, a skunk ape, so. you're fucking dead. Yeah, <laughs> and then the skunk ape's probably just going to wander off. Absolutely, it's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my knee hurts. <laughs> Stem low. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you'd appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. Goonie goo goo. <laughs> Sorry, that. that made me laugh. Yes. <laughs> So, this story is particularly great because, you know, it's so emblematic of that Falk flap. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, you know, it's one, one witness... Classic. Oh, yeah. Oh, please, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's definitely a classic sighting. Yeah. It, it's one of, like, the most... You know, as far as all the other sightings we've talked about, that's such a good sighting, too. Oh, yeah. Because, like, it's, it's the perfect kind of, like, Halloween story sighting. It is. I saw the monkey man crossing the woods. So, one of the witnesses said to Blackburn in 2004, quote, All of us talked about what we saw to our families. I still think they don't believe us. We never reported anything at first because we didn't want people thinking that we were trying to get attention or something. It's understandable. So, yeah, it's that, it's like everything that you want in a classic Boggy Creek Falk monster sighting is right there in that story. Absolutely. It's... it's and, yeah. One of my favorites we've covered, just for the simplicity of it. Yeah, and uh, like right there in 1992. Yeah. So, you know, it's... um. So I figured I'd kind of use that as kind of like a, a perfect post-Boggy Creek sighting. Yes, absolutely. Now, our second story here, and our final story... Oh, boy. Uh, this one involves Lyle Blackburn and good old Smoky Crabtree. Hey, everybody get in the clown boat. It's time to hit the, <laughs> it's time to hit the fucking river on this one. Now, the story itself is long, twisting, it's kind of an odyssey. Uh, I'm not going to cover all of it, because uh-huh. I think we're going to do an episode on this in the future. Oh, please do. But I want to kind of set us up for this. So, one day at a Bigfoot researchers meeting being held in Texarkana around 2010 or so, Lyle Blackburn met Smokey Crabtree, who was speaking at the event. It's a fucking Highlander, what the fuck? Right, yeah. Now, Smokey's a very long-lived guy. They're talking about the swamp people forever. (laughs) Must be something in the water. (laughs) Fucking eating moss is what it is. (laughs) Um, So, you know, after the event, Lyle and a few others were offered an opportunity to to follow Smokey to an undisclosed location to see some Falk relics. Okay, this has suddenly turned into an episode of the first 48. Like, this is how you and I get kidnapped. Uh, yeah, no, this is really, this is how you and me are going to die. Uh, hey, fellow, you want to see a bit of a UFO? You're goddamn right I do, sir. I'll go right here in my van. Go and put on this blindfold. Yes, sir. Would you like me to give you a cashier's check while we're at it? Holy God. I mean, like, this reminds me of that thing they say on last podcast. Never go to a second location. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, 
you know, and it's it's a very strange it's, it's a very strange scenario, but it's totally in line with this kind of world of squatching. I, you know what I mean? Seriously, I just picture a hundred and twenty year old Smokey. Hey man, you want to see some leftover artifacts from Falk? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I guess. How do right. you react to that? <laughs> so eventually, kind of gets this location. And it's a densely crowded and darkened warehouse. Like, it, it's oh, not God. entirely a warehouse, but, you know, like a large storage uh, uh-huh. unit, right? And like, very large. I guess Judge Doom and the Weasels were there, and the Dipmobile. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Smokey leads them through this, like, tangled path of, you know, boxes and things and that sort of thing. Um, and he takes him to this gigantic wooden panel against the wall that has a scrawled message on it. Uh-huh. That message was eight foot skeleton. Wait, what? Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. So sure enough, Smokey slid away the panel and revealed a massive acrylic case containing the still fetid remains of something, quite literally an eight foot skeleton composed of dried sinew and tissues, bones, and missing a skull. Uh okay. It's Smokey's jerky. <laughs> Smokey smoked Sasquatch. Come on down, uh, y'all. Oh my god. So yes, yeah, so now imagine you're in this really weird darkened warehouse with Smoky Crabtree, and he opens up this panel and you see an eight foot tall skeleton missing a skull that's still that's right. still juicy yeah it's it's a it's a juicy giant ape with no skull it's the kurgan now now what's even better <laughs> now what's even better is that Smokey then proceeds to open the case and you get that smell oh that's pleasant yeah i guess you could say it was foul oh that's terrible the yeah. foul stench of falk <laughs> So, you know, Smokey explains that around 1991, the skeleton had come into his possession. Uh-huh. It had been discovered on the border of Texas and Louisiana, albeit headless and skinless. Uh, wh- <sighs> yes, yes, I, I have many questions. It, most <laughs> of mine involve the movie Predator. <laughs> um, so, familiar with stories of the Falk monster... Like and likely due to the legend of Boggy Creek, right? Uh, the people who found the, the the remains contacted Smokey Crabtree. Smokey, the natural businessman he was, because remember he worked himself out of yeah. a sweet little gig with uh, Charles B. Pierce. Damn straight. He agreed to work with the men to get it tested, uh, get the, the remains tested, and claimed a one third share of any profits made on the remains, uh, which is a sweet deal. Like he sure. didn't do shit. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, he didn't uh, do shit. The two guys he found it. And he's just like, oh, here, come in for a third. Okay. Into this situation. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, Smokey, you know, good to good, uh, good to his word. He does about ten thousand dollars in tests with various scientists and university professors. Best they can determine it was that the remains weren't human. Okay. Now, Blackburn would later do his own research on the remains, discovering that they were known and debated in the larger Bigfoot community. The remains were even seen in a 1995 documentary called The Hunt for Bigfoot. So, the facts of the story of the skeleton didn't quite add up, and much of the media surrounding it was obscured or lost. What in the fuck keeps happening to this stuff? How do you keep losing it? Right. What are you... 
I mean, like, are you on a boat with the papers loose on the back and they just blow off into the reservoir? What the fuck, people? Be careful with your alien and Bigfoot stuff. Well, well, here's the thing. You know why it's so hard to find evidence of a Sasquatch, right? Why? Because it's in their bones. Oh. <laughs> I don't even oh, know. Oh, you seem I so upset. Even, I don't even want to talk to you about that right now. Let's move <laughs> well, on. That's too bad. I'm still going. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, Blackburn's accounting of all this is like, it's a fascinating read. Uh, it's great archival journalism. Uh-huh. Spends a great deal of time examining the history of these remains and their status in Bigfoot lore. But that is definitely a story for another episode. I want to do an entire story yeah. on this eight-foot skeleton. Well, that is a fucking tease, and I am down for it. So, I, I think here's where we're going to start wrapping up. So, right. We're going to end our three-parter series on Falk's monster here. We looked at the early sightings, a recent sighting, and covered the Falk flap, which was immortalized by one filmmaker who saw an opportunity and ran with it. And God bless him for it. You know, and of the Bigfoot sightings out there, there are none as well documented, revered, or exploited as those of the events of The Legend of Boggy Creek outside of the Patterson-Gimlin film. And that's still just two guys and two horses. Right. (laughs) Oh, and then, you know, number of horses in our Boggy Creek episodes. Yeah, but, you know, the horses were involved in the mystery in this one. (laughs) They weren't just witnesses. (laughs) So, if I were to try to put, like, a little bow and tie this together, I want to say this. Ultimately, what we've covered here are three perspectives on a singular anomaly. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who witnessed them, the people of Falk, and, like, the Crabtree family. The movie man who made them famous, Charles B. Pierce. Mm -hmm. And the author and musician who was enamored with the film he saw in his childhood and has continued to explore to this day, Lyle Blackburn. Right. All in all, not a terrible outcome derived from sightings of a swamp ape. That is a great way to wrap that up. Thank you. While the film made it famous, the nature of the film has cast a lot of strange doubt over the events. I know a Mm -hmm. lot of people think that this entire thing was just made up and Mm -hmm. don't believe any of it was based on actual encounters. Like you always hear, well, they just made that up for the movie. And I was curious if you've run across any of that in your research. Well, I've obviously run across a number of, like, skeptical articles because, you know, people like Mike are out there always trying to shit on our fun. Yes. It's like a dump in (laughs) the pudding. No, I mean, there's a lot of skeptical, like, you know, and there's all these different explanations. You know, I've read a thing about, like, the the, the circus train hypothesis. Oh, God. Um, there's also the theory that the a few of the sightings were of a tiger. What? Like, well, you know, someone, you know, well, you've seen Tiger King, right? You know, people collect exotic cats. Sure, and, uh, but, I mean. They, they don't take care of them, and they get out and loose. And, and what do they do? Do they train them to walk upright and terrorize people and attack you while you're sitting in the well, living room? You don't know You don't know if the people, you know, I, I'm just going to say the people could have been high on their supply or something when they saw stuff. You sure, know? okay, it's, but. It, there, there's, until there's, like, very solid evidence, there's always going to be that huge shadow of doubt. Sure. Like, the eight-foot skeleton probably belongs to a large cat uh, yeah i guess so or a bear or something sure, like that like bear, there are maybe. bears in arkansas yeah. so you know it yeah. could have been a bear sighting too um well, i mean so there's all those doubters there's yeah. all those doubters you're always going to have that 
Well, my thing is the uh, uh, about the circus train hypothesis. I I can't imagine like there there would have to be a book called the obscene number of circus train disasters in the United States, eighteen ninety five to nineteen seventy eight. Right, and like I can't find any like yeah. I, I admittedly I haven't looked very deep into it. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen anything like, okay, in 1965, a circus train derailed in Arkansas. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't see that. Yeah, no, I mean, this is like the Pope Blick monster, you know. They, they say, oh, there was a train wreck, and he fought like a old Civil War colonel, and now he still lives under the bridge, tricking people out into the center of the bridge where they get hit by trains. And I'm like, what? Right. How, how what, what? I'm sorry, it's just there's not that many train crashes involving circuses. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't happen, but, like, it's not like a fucking elephant train wreck every year for the last century. How many elephants and tigers are we losing to train accidents every year? Yeah, I mean, seriously. It's an epidemic at this point. Yeah, it's... it's, Any any more than two in a decade is like, okay, there's something seriously wrong here. Yeah, no, there's like some crazy (laughs) bastard out there sabotaging the train tracks when Barnum and Bailey's coming through town. (laughs) Or it's Barnum and Bailey putting all their competition out of business. That's the only other option I can think of. There you go. It's just a circus clown with a sniper rifle. (laughs) Shoots shoots one of the wheels and derails the train. Are you? And then he then as he leaves into the distance, you just hear a honk honk. <laughs> Are you saying it's the Joker? Uh, Joker doesn't have a honky nose. That's true. Well, yeah. Mm, okay, that's fair. Right. Yeah, it's well, just, it's just uh, Bozo the Clown from uh, Bozo uh, Arnim and Bailey. Yeah, yeah, it's Bozo straight out of Chicago. Riding the rails, <laughs> looking for circuses to derail. Uh, David, thank you so much for these episodes. They've been fantastic, and I hope everyone's been enjoying them. We've had a lot of fun talking about something that is very near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, well, and I'd like to ask you a question. After we've done sure. like three of these episodes, mm-hmm. do you believe that there is something out there in the swamps near Falk? Or there was? All right. So, like, I've been through Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And I'm I've so been, sorry. God damn it. So, <laughs> I've been, you know, I've driven down some crazy-ass roads all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. I've driven over some of the bayous. And I'm not going to lie, man. If there's anywhere that something could hide, I mean, like, you can go for long stretches in Arkansas without seeing signs of civilization except the road you're driving on. Yeah. So, yeah, something could be out be out there. I'm not saying it's still out there. It could be. Yeah, like it, it's entirely possible. And you know, uh, all the fun little synchronicities that pop up when we do these things. Oh yeah. Um. So you know, I, I had to get that Travis Crabtree video to you because I was like, hey, I want to play this during the episode. Absolutely. One of one of the comments on the YouTube video is a guy who apparently had a Bigfoot encounter in Hemet, California, which is where I live. Oh wow! Really? This year. This year. And I think I know where he had that encounter, so I'm going to try to get a hold of him. Really? Because um, I want to check out. Because we, we have... Um, I, I live um, just north of a large area, a wilderness area called, like, Anza. Mm-hmm. And there's there's plenty of places where something like that. Like, I don't know if there's anything out there, but, like, this guy apparently saw something. I found the comment. Yeah. 
yeah, and it, it's weird. You know, I think you see me under there, like, hey, I want to talk to you. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, yeah. I. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We definitely need to get in touch with this guy, see if he'd be interested in doing an interview because uh, mm-hmm. we could do that on the follow up next year. Because I know that there, I have a, I have a, you know, you know, I, you and I both collect books about oh, sightings and yes. supernatural. So I have a, uh, a book, I don't remember which book it is, but it lists like sightings in Riverside, California, which is my county. Right. So I'm going to see if I can rustle up uh, a skunk ape in my area. Hey, there you go. Don't, there you go. Don't go out there and like literally rustle a skunk ape. I'm gonna go out there on my chaps. Oh nope, nope. You're go- yes, you're going out there in your assed chaps. No, no, I'm going out just straight up chaps. I'm wearing nothing but chaps. Oh man, you gonna? I, I want to hear the slapping as I walk through the canyon. Jeez. I'm trying to find Sasquatch, but I'm so dummy thick. I just keep <laughs> clapping. <laughs> Maybe that's the mating call of the Sasquatch: is the the just clapping of ass cheeks. Just slap, slap, slap. <laughs> I hear slapping hams. I... <laughs> Hark, I hear a Sasquatch. The sound of slapping hams. That's great. Oh, David, thank you so much for these episodes. I really appreciate it. Tell the people where they can find you on the interwebs. Well, I appreciate you letting me handle this. This was a lot of fun. Um, if you want to find me... Good luck. No, but uh, <laughs> seriously, though, <laughs> um, I do a couple of fun web comics. Uh, you can go to cosmicdash.com. That's my science fiction adventure series. About a turbo uh, guy. And then there is uh, rgbots.com, which is a comic about robots saying obscene things to each other. Which is friggin' awesome. I appreciate that. And then uh, I write for Haunted MTL, and I'm doing a podcast for them about the Chucky franchise. Definitely check that out. I'm on a couple yeah. of episodes so far. You've been far. on a couple episodes now. Yes, I enjoy being on those couple of episodes. Yeah, so you can find the podcast on Spotify. Just type in uh, Ch- uh, Kids' Stuff, a Chucky podcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I also do a couple shows here on Deviant Behavior Radio. Other than that, I don't want to talk about myself too much. Sure. Well, uh, be sure to check the DeviantBehaviorRadio.com website. You can find the schedule, and it'll have David's shows listed on there, including the Mutant Hours. And what's the other one? Uh, The Haunted MTL Radio Hour, where we play uh, Haunted MTL podcasts. Yes, definitely a good way to uh, check those out. Uh, Also, for me, you can find me here on this podcast, or Deviant Behavior Radio. Um, mostly on the sh- uh, the station I'm doing promos and stuff, but uh, you can find everything about the show at supernatpod.rocks. If you would like to find us on the socials, we are at we're on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for at supernatpod. Uh, if you have questions for the show, we're always happy to answer questions. I know Mike is, and uh, me and David... Did we ever answer the question about the octopus? Oh, we didn't. Are octopuses aliens? Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. They're definitely yep. fucking aliens. Cause we'll do an episode on that. Yeah. Uh, eventually, yes, we will do uh, something about aliens on Earth, and we'll probably bring up octopi for various reasons. Yep. But yeah, socials at SupernatPod. Uh, you want to ask us questions at SupernatPod or go to the website SupernatPod.rocks. Use the contact form. 
you can and please make them invasive. It make them as invasive as humanly possible. I want you to make me cite hard figures. Yeah, how many times have you tickled your own taint? You know, stuff there like that. So uh, that's about it. Thank you everybody for watching. We love all the support. Uh, currently, Dave Holyfield is still king of the podcast. If you would like to join our Patreon, look for Supernatural Selection at uh, on uh, Patreon. There's a link on the website. Uh, we're going to have bonus material as soon as we have some folks donating at those levels. So that's about it. So everybody stay safe. And until next time, stay frosty. Goodbye. And you know what? I'm going to take us out on something. Something very, very special. You know what it is, David. We're going to go out with Travis again. Guns a-blazing. Guns a-blazing at that Bigfoot. Hey, Travis Crabtree. Wait a minute for me. Good night, everybody. Let's go back in the bottom. Back where the fish are biting. Supernatural Selection has been a production of DeviantBehaviorRadio.com. You can find it and more shows broadcast weekly at DeviantBehaviorRadio.com. Our theme music is Screensaver by Kevin McLeod. It is used through Creative Commons license, and more of his music can be found at incompetech.filmmusic.io.